I don't know if it's a coincidence or if the Lord desires us to hear text on this topic. I really can't say. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4 tonight, but I was drawn back to the idea of suffering, of reproach again this week. I remember last week we were in Hebrews 13. We talked a little bit about that. I, I do believe, <clears throat> for what it's worth, that the church at large in America, or generally speaking, is hamstrung by the fact that we have so much ease, relatively speaking, as Christians. Now, you, you might think I'm, you know, speaking like a senator or, or, you know, I'm trying to placate when I say America really is the greatest country in the world based on, how, you know, some other views that I have. But I, I do believe that um, living here is an amazing privilege. This is a wonderful land. Uh, but I do wonder if, if in a unique way, that's a disadvantage for the Christian. I don't, I don't think the Lord would have us be at such ease all the time. I think that can be dangerous over the long haul. Uh, I have no political or ideological leanings that make me think that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm forced to come to grips with Scripture here. The, the New Testament in particular, of course the Old Testament as well, but the New Testament is written to a suffering people uh, that have no advantages, no ease, nothing like that, especially not politically or socially speaking. Um, it's written to people that the author seemed to constantly assume are under the gun. For their Christianity. They don't have voting rights. They don't have freedoms to that degree. They, they couldn't really do anything to change the state in which they live. Nothing at all. Um, they live in an empire, mostly under a dictator who calls himself the emperor. But that milieu in history is when God chose to send his son and speak his final word to us for life and godliness. That would apply to his people for all times in all places, regardless of their own personal political circumstances. We, we live, and, and I, like, a, this isn't a, a critique or an insult, because of course you, this is true. We, we live to avoid suffering, right? We don't really want it to be a part of our lives. And, and the Bible does not tell us we should seek out suffering or try to endure suffering. Not at all. It, it does, however, tell us to expect it. And so it teaches us how to live with it. In fact, Peter writes that willingness to endure and suffering is at the essence of what it means to live according to the will of God while we're in these earthly bodies. There is a certain way of thinking that enables us to live for the will of God in a world at war with God where Christ has already won the victory. So let's, let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your revelation to us. Father, I pray that you would help us receive your word tonight. Hear it as you intended when you wrote it, O oh God. Please help me preach to that end and not get in the way of it. Please enable us all to listen, to understand this, to believe it. For your glory and for our souls, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I don't know how I'm still not remembering not to put ice in my church drinks. Because when I take a drink, I have to chew ice. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. That's now the word for unbelievers. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So right out of the gate, there's a way of thinking for the Christian in verse 1. And it's, it's not optional for some Christians. You know, the, the word of God is living. It, it's not like an option that, that, you know, for, for Christians that have, that are bent more towards thinking deeply about things. That's not what he's saying at all. The Christian that would survive this world must have this way of thinking, must be armed with this way of thinking. In 1 Peter uh, 1.5, he told us that the means by which God will guard us to the end to receive our inheritance is faith. In other words, where there is not faith, there is not salvation. Right? Christ must be believed upon. Here we learn that this enduring faith, that is the means by which God gets us to our inheritance, that he's promised and guaranteed to us, the means he gets us there is faith. We're learning that that faith has a certain way of thinking that helps it endure, helps us endure. It's the way Jesus thought. It's the way Jesus armed himself for life in this world, and that is with a willingness to suffer. The Christian will suffer in two ways, mainly. We'll suffer with sin. We'll suffer because of sin. And as he'll address later, with trials. Believers, he says, Christians have ceased from sin. Now, what does Peter mean by that? <clears throat> that a believer is one who no longer sins? No. He's speaking to the way of thinking a sinner in the world has versus the way of thinking Christ and his people must have. It's a matter of what you live for, right? Whether or not you ceased from sin. Living in sin is to live controlled by our desires as our Lord. It is to live, as he says it here, for human passions in verse 2. You either live for other passions or for human passions. To suffer for not giving in to our desires is what it means to cease from sin. We, we are no longer ruled by sin. That's, that's what he's saying. It is to cease from being ruled by it. Christ suffered in the flesh to cease from sin by putting it into its power over us at the cross where he was punished for it on our behalf. Peter says it's way past time for believers to continue living like our sin has not been dealt with. That, that, that it's the former Lord of our lives, not the current Lord of our lives. Sin has been defanged. Its power has been broken over us because Christ suffered in the flesh to destroy it. That was his way of thinking towards sin. This must be destroyed. Right? I was putting into this. Notice the connection he makes here, Peter does, between desire and behaviors. What we're learning in the first few verses is that what people desire becomes the Lord of their lives. And they will persecute you for not worshiping the same divinity that they do. But Jesus has won the victory over sin. He is the Lord of the universe, not King Sin. So the unbelieving will give an account to the true judge. They'll give an account to Christ. And that is why the church is tasked with preaching the gospel to those who are dead. That is, those who are still controlled by King Sin, who have not been made alive by the word of Christ. They're dead. 
Right? They're the walking dead. And this is the way of thinking Peter's arguing for in verse 6. The issue for those who are lost is that they're being judged in their flesh by the wrath of God. Right? They're, they're not alive. They're dead. Think of Romans 1 and how God has given them up to their own passions. Right? They're under God's wrath right now. They're, they're not living. They're dead. But by preaching the gospel to them, God desires that they would instead live in the Spirit the way God does. That is that they would find their lives in a new identity. One fixed on the reality of what the victory of Jesus has accomplished for sinners. In other words, living in the way the Spirit, the way God does, living according to what's real in us because of what Christ has done. So we don't live according to what our flesh feels. We don't live according to our instincts, our base primal desires. We live in the Spirit. right? We live based on what God says is true, that bears witness He is bearing witness to in our spirits. We ceased living in the flesh because Christ suffered for us. We ceased living for human passions because Christ suffered. We arm ourselves with this way of thinking. That's fighting language. That's war language. We arm ourselves with this way of thinking. That's how we fight sin, by the way we think as citizens of heaven, as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been made alive. There's no way around sin without suffering. Whether it's inside of you and you're trying to resist it, or it's outside of you and hurting you. Because other people are controlled by their desires. And they'll be mad at you for not being that way. Thankfully, we don't have to suffer for the sake of our sin in judgment. Christ has done that for us. But we will suffer in the flesh as He pulls us away from it, and away from a world bent on it by His Word. That will cause suffering. There will be friction and tension because we aren't ruled by our passions anymore. We don't live for them. We've ceased to live for that. For another king. Right? Remember, we didn't get saved because all our faculties and desires said, you know what? I don't ever want to sin again. I don't ever want to give in to my flesh ever again. I'll never want to give in to my flesh ever again. That's not why we got saved. Right? If, if you pull a person out of a fire, right? You aren't changing their nature. You're saving their life. They're the same person they were before you rescued them, but now they're a person who's been rescued. The hope would be, what would be nice is if they lived in light of the fact that they had been rescued, but there's no guarantee of that, right? That they were in a predicament where they just needed saving, right? So they weren't saying, they weren't agreeing in that moment to become a better person. I know that happens in some ways, but You're pulling somebody out of a fire that they didn't expect to be in. All they want is to be rescued, and rightly so. When Jesus delivered us, He's not delivering us because we stepped up to the plate, because we did all the right things and said all the right things and caused us to come to Him. He just came to us and saved us. Peter is saying to those Christians and to us, it is those who are in the flesh who are so controlled by sin that they worship themselves by giving in to their desires. That's what they're like. That's what it means to worship yourself, to give in to your desires. It's those who are in the flesh that would malign you for not participating in their sin because their sins are their gods. Their sin is their religion. And they'll evangelize you with persecution if you won't worship their gods. He's saying, we are not like this. We are not controlled by our desires. Christ suffered for us to break sin's power over us. So live according to what's true in your spirit, the witness of Christ. 
verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who, or whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So notice here the rationale for this way of thinking, to arm yourself with a certain way of thinking because you're in this fight against yourself, against the world. His rationale for this, for the way believers live and think is this, the end of all things is at hand. It's almost over. Now, we might ask how Peter could say that. Is he mistaken here? Was he wrong? It's From the time he wrote this, 2,000 some years have passed. So, was he just wrong? The end of all things isn't actually at hand. No. That's kind of the whole, that's the way of thinking. We, the way he's talking here, that's how we need to talk. That's how we need to think. The end of all things is not a matter of chronology. Right? It, it's, it's not a chronological matter, at least not first and foremost. The end of all things is at hand as long as Christ is risen, ascended, and victorious. So the end of all things was at hand when Peter was talking. The end of all things is still at hand because Christ is still in that state. Is still reigning victorious over sin and death and hell. It could be one year after the resurrection. Fifty some or a hundred thousand. It doesn't matter. The end of all things is at hand. It's a state of things brought about by Christ. It's not determined by time. Right? It's not like you have to tick off a certain amount of prophecies and then the end is at hand. No, the end is at hand because Christ has finished his work against King Sin. Since it's that day all the time, since we are that far along on God's calendar, live in recognition of it. Live like that is true. Don't act like you're preparing for the end to arrive in the future. You can punt when you do that. Right? You, you can, you can just, you can choose whether or not to live with urgency if you're sure the, the end is sometime out in the future. And don't live like you won't be here for it either, he said. You're in it. Now, the end of all things is at hand as long as the scripture stands. Therefore, Peter says, live this way. We live as though at any moment everything stops and it's over and Christ is here. That's the life of Jesus. It was a life given away for the sake of others. That's what he's describing as it would look like for us fighting against sin in verses 7 through 11. This is how different the community of the church is from the world. This is what people who have ceased to live under the dominion of King Sin, this is what they look like. This is what their lives look like, ideally. Notice how our behavior is the polar opposite of the world's behavior in verses 3 to 4, which is all centered on self-gratification. Instead of serving ourselves, we serve others. See, we live in the Spirit the way God does. We, we, we live according to what's true outside of us. Instead of serving ourselves, we serve others. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
The way we think about our place in this world has something to do with the tone of our prayers. It has something to do with the content of our prayers. Right? It's that, that's a, that's a, a, a sobering thought. You can hear what somebody's way of thinking is based on how they pray. Right? How do, what do they go to the Lord for? What do they pray for? Like the end is at hand. Like there are priorities. Or are their prayers completely centered on self and on comfort? We're better fitted to communicate with God when we have our heads on straight. We have the right way of thinking, understanding that suffering is a necessary thing for those in the world, but not of it. Right? Suffering is the way. We are going to suffer. Why? Because we still live in these bodies, the old Adam, right? And the world is still rebelling against God. Therefore, life is going to be a struggle for those that are swimming upstream in this. We love one another earnestly. Why? Why the adverb here? Right? Well, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, in context, that's very interesting. If the passions of our flesh are constantly waging war against our souls, which Peter said they are, back in chapter 2, verse 11. If the passions of our flesh that we've ceased from and to live under, if they are still waging war against our souls, and so we have this pressure from the inside to give in, and if the world maligns us because instead of giving in like they do in worshiping ourselves, we desire to fight and resist because we're no longer under the reign of King Sin, then you, you, you can start to see the place of love and the necessity of love amongst each other because we're going to be under constant pressure and tension. We are going to need each other, beloved. We do not have time to not care for each other. The end of all things is at hand. Right? Everything is ramped up. Right? Satan is going crazy. Right? He's, he's done. He's finished. It's only a matter of time. He's going to take as many people with him into the pits of hell as he can. And he hates you and I. He hates the church. It's ruining his plan. It's thwarting him at every turn because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son, not to him. So not only do we live inside these bodies that are constantly saying, give in, give in, do what you want to do, say what you want to say. It's your right. Do what you want to do. You're going to have that. Then you're going to have the world just pounding you right into submission, just trying to get at you at every turn. And what does Peter say in all that? Go out there and you know, have a fire brigade and wipe out evil. No. Love one another earnestly, gang. You're going to be having a hard time. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Well, that's what we need to happen. That's what we need to happen. Why does Satan work so hard to divide us in the church? Why? Because, beloved, you, you know the answer to that, right? If, if we're on an island, we are not going to survive. The one anothering element of New Testament Christianity is pervasive here. Just everything is one another, one another, one another. We need to be armed with a way of thinking that allows us to love one another in spite of our sinfulness, right? 
so that when we let one another down, we're still loved and we're still welcomed. Everybody in this room is fighting a battle right now. Right? That's, I think that's a very kind saying. You'll see it sometimes on Facebook, something along the lines of everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Just be kind, right? Well, this is absolutely true in the church. We know some of each other's battles. We don't know hardly anything about each other, though, right? That's why we make a priority out of hospitality here in the text, of, of being with each other. That's why we're careful to speak the Word of God, oracles of God to each other, when we talk to each other. That's why we seek to serve one another by the strength that God supplies, not, not in our own strength but by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, even in our serving of each other. Right? We will rarely have the strength for serving others. We'll need to fully rely on God. Now, to embrace this takes a certain way of thinking about our own lives, a certain sense of reality, a certain perspective. What are our expectations for each other? What should they be? Right? What do we expect to receive from others? What do we think we're obligated to give to others? Peter told us in 1, 6, and 7 that it's necessary for us to be grieved by various trials. Necessary. To be grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, throughout this letter, we're just looking at four tonight, but throughout this letter, he's taught that as those who have been born again into new life in Christ, we are going to suffer in many different ways for many different reasons. First Peter is really a book about suffering. Personally, we'll suffer in our own lives, in our fight with sin, in our own minds, all these things. We'll suffer in our relationships. Uh, we'll suffer under the power of the state. And what they impose on us, our whole lives are kicking against the grain of the old way of things in this world. And we have said goodbye to just living for ourselves. For the world, the only way to survive is to take care of you. To make you the priority. For the world, that's all they have. Right? This is it. And so you've got to do for yourself. Forget others. You've got to take care of you. You're number one. We've ceased from that way of thinking. We've had one that has broken the power of sin and slavery to the fear of death in us. We live in the way, we, we live in the spirit. We don't live in the flesh. Jesus is Lord in our trials so that through them, He's refining and strengthening our faith, strengthening our faith so that it endures. All right, Romans 5 talks about this. But, but it's trials that build endurance for the believer. So we need, a, we need a way of thinking that keeps us from being surprised by trials as though they aren't meant to be a part of our life. Right, that, that takes a certain way of thinking that's otherworldly. Right? Spurgeon, that great statement from Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Now, I don't know how you do that. Right? I wish very much I could give you three steps to kissing the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. 
I, I, I don't know how we get there. I think we get there through prayer and through faith. I don't think Spurgeon was being silly. I think he had learned to kiss the wave that threw him against the rock of ages. He was a man filled with tremendous suffering. But we, we, have to, we have to have a certain way of thinking about suffering trials, beloved. It's crucial. It's, it's crucial. It's, it's, there's a way of acceptance here. Jesus lived by it. That, that's, that's what you see. This way of thinking is what you see in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want this. If there's another way, let's do that. Nevertheless, I trust you. So not my will, but yours be done. That, that's the way of thinking, right? I want to, I want to say this correctly because I, but I don't know how else to say it. You, you, well, and I totally forgot it. How does that happen? Maybe it was wrong. I don't know. It, it's, it's like we almost need, well, I have no idea what I was going to say. I hate that. I'm really sorry. I blanked out. But, we need a different way of thinking than to see trials as merely interruptions that we shouldn't have to be experiencing. Right? We need a different way of thinking. They're not keeping us from spiritual growth. They are spiritual growth. And sometimes I think we get so hard on ourselves. I mean, certainly, look, you can make decisions that cause tremendous suffering. And the suffering is your own fault, and thankfully God is merciful, right? Then there's other kinds of suffering where you're just getting pelted. And it's a very hard stretch. And, and I think the tendency is to think, why are you doing this to me? And there's a sense in which the Bible says, you know why, you know why this is happening to you. I'm trying to refine you, and you're kicking against me. Right? I'm, I'm trying to get you home, and you, you think I'm stepping, I'm not in the, I'm not in your way. Right now, again, the maturity it takes to get there, that's what I want. That, that's what I'm saying. That I want to be armed with that way of thinking. Because it certainly doesn't come naturally. And who wants that? Who, you know, who, who? but that, that, again, when you, that's how Jesus lived. So our trials, the things that, we're not suffering because God is not in control. We're suffering because He wants us to endure. Verse 12 here to the end of the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. So this is what he was talking about in chapter 1. It's a very cohesive letter. You know, the, the genuine testedness of your faith that's tested like gold, that's refined in fire. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That he's arguing for a way of thinking. Where are you surprised in your thoughts? Right? That, that's, that's where the element of surprise gets you in, in the way of thinking. I was surprised by these. This is arguing for a way of thinking. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's a way of thinking. Don't think that this is strange. Right? Think that this is part of my life. But rejoice, rejoice. Count it all joy, James says. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, insofar as you're living what Christ lived, rejoice. 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's the right way of thinking. Oh, that's what's happening to me. I'm blessed. I'm with Christ. That's a way of thinking. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That's those are the reasons you suffer when you haven't ceased from sin, when you live for sin, when you give in to your desires and follow yourself and your own heart. Right. You 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 suffer in prison when you live like that. You get killed when you live like that. Right. If, if you want money more than anything and you're willing to rob a store and you rob it, and you get shot. You're suffering because you're a thief. And Peter would say, don't suffer for that. Don't suffer for your sin. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, and there it is, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, for the right thinking to be the case here. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? They're, they're, you can suffer because you believe yourself or you can suffer because you live for the will of God and you trust him for your whole life and with your whole life. Why would suffering fiery trials surprise us? Peter is saying. Surprise is not the right response. Surprise means you didn't expect it, which means you aren't listening to the Word of God. They're fiery trials because God is using them to refine us. That's what makes them fiery. They're doing something. This is 2 Corinthians 4. But we live under His will now. Christ was willing to suffer because of the sin in the world. He knew he was going to take it on himself and deal with it. He knew God's will was to conquer it through him. So he accepted how God's will for him to deal with sin would dictate his life. The way Jesus dealt with sin is way different than the way you and I deal with sin, but he still dealt with it. Not as a sinner, but as one who would take on all the punishment we deserve for it on our behalf. So his fight with sin is a lot harder than ours. Hebrews says you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood for your sin. Jesus shed all his blood for sin. Because Jesus had accepted God's will for his life, the reason for which God sent him, look at the way he lived towards sin, towards people, towards his enemies, towards his friends. He was able to resist temptation because his eyes were fixed on the Lord. His face was set toward Jerusalem. He was able to resist the pull of his flesh. He was able to endure reproach and to be maligned because he knew how to think. And don't think, well, I, I can't think like Jesus did. Beloved, this isn't, this isn't like, like a part of the, the power Jesus had as the God-man. This is Jesus in his flesh here. Right, So it's not like this was a magic trick he did because he was also God. No, 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 no. It, it, nothing Jesus accomplished came about easy for Jesus. Nothing. 
Right? Jesus, the Father says in Hebrews that He suffered like us so that He could sympathize with us and it not be fake. Faith in the Word of God was Jesus' way of thinking. Faith in the will of God was Jesus' way of thinking. Our, our trials come upon us to test us so that we might be victorious like Christ was because that's the path to victory. So don't rejoice in trials because trials are great. Right? That's, that's insane. Thank God he didn't say that. Learn to love your trials and think they're great. No, no, no. That's Christian science. That's not Christianity. But don't rejoice in trials because they're fun or they're good or they're pleasant or they're awesome or something. God does not call us or expect us to like suffering. That's not what Peter is arguing for. For us to become masochists. No, 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 no. Rejoice in trials to the extent that suffering trials because of sin and because of the world means that we are truly united to Christ. And we're going to see Him in His glory. Rejoice for that about trials. We are experiencing exactly what Jesus did. God wants us to rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed at His return. He wants us to endure in faith all the way to the end. And the text is saying, look, if our thinking is bad, particularly about facing trials, we won't endure to the end in faith. We'll stop believing Christ. And verse 12 and following, fiery trials are here because the end is at hand and the earth is reeling and rocking. Our suffering is not a sign of evil's triumph. Our suffering is a sign of God's activity on the world in light of what Christ has brought about. Jesus is one. So, don't suffer as a citizen of the world. Suffer as a Christian. Arm yourself with thinking like a Christian, not a citizen of the world when you face trials, when your flesh wants you to sin, when you're being attacked because you won't join in other people's debauchery. That's how Jesus is able to love his enemies when they hate him so much and try to kill him and eventually succeed. That's why Jesus can hang on the cross, fully God and fully man, and say and mean it, Father, forgive these people. They do not know what they're doing. Right? Why? Because he knew how to think about suffering, even the suffering of the cross. The judgment of the world, God's activity to bring his will to bear on the world, that begins at the church. It starts with us. We're the closest to him. The risen and reigning Christ is present here at the church. It's here where his word is proclaimed most clearly that it does its most immediate work. Right? This is God's will for us. It's a judgment upon us, not in a wrathful sense or penal sense, but a sense of His will for us. This is what He declares for us. And if among us, His people, the Word of God is separating the wheat from the chaff, what will the Word be doing where it's not welcomed? Where Jesus is actually hated and the flesh is loved? Imagine what it will be like for them. So, look at, look at how precarious we are in this passage. I mean, just look at this, how much danger we're in at all times. When you hear Jesus say, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Then you read something like this. Jesus, he's quoting here. 
from the Old Testament text, if the righteous is scarcely saved, scarcely saved. What do you mean, beloved? It's a fight. If, if it was up to us, we would defect on Jesus. If holding on to our salvation was our responsibility, if it was up to us, we'd lose it. We'd fail. We'd go right into judgment, beloved. We would not make it. Why? Because we live in these old bodies. The flesh is still fighting against the Spirit. Therefore, there's a sense in which we will be scarcely saved. Why? We're going to get saved by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin. Because if it was up to us, we'd go back. So, arm yourself with knowing that about yourself. I need you, Lord. I need you to endure in trials. I need you to fight temptation. I need you. I need you. I need you. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. I see, but I see men like trees walking. God, help me. Lead me in the path. Teach me to choose the right ways, to make the right decisions. Help me. We should expect nothing but trouble in one sense. I don't mean you have to be pessimistic or dreary or melancholy or anything like that. I, I, I don't mean that. and The text does not mean that. But there is a way of thinking. We, 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 we have to have our heads on straight. We should expect trials. Not because the issue of our salvation is a doubt from God's perspective. It is finished from God's perspective. We just are sheep. And sheep are not very smart. Sheep are very hard to manage. And that's what we are. Thankfully, it's the shepherd's job to keep the sheep. Not the sheep's job to keep the shepherd. We must arm ourselves with the right way of thinking. Such a judgment is so close even to us. Right? If it wasn't for His mercy, we're done. And we're made righteous in Christ. But since it's so close in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Living for the will of God is willingness to suffer as a Christian. As a Christian. Living for now in the sin-filled world in the old Adam's body. We are called to entrust our souls to our faithful creator. That's living in the Spirit. While we live the life of faith in service to others. This is the way of thinking that arms us with hands of service and love and patience and mercy and forgiveness. It takes a certain way of thinking. It takes a certain view of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes we expect so much of each other that nobody has a chance to please us. And Peter would say, look at how much, look at this. If, if God pulled His hand away from you for one second, you'd perish. You have your flesh. You, you are your own worst enemy. The world hates you. It's God's will for you to suffer fiery trials. How strong do you think you can be on your own? Uh, you need love in your life. You need love covering a multitude of sins in the body of Christ. Because there's going to be a multitude of sins. Even here. So when He says, let judgment begin at the house of God, right. Let us be the ones most aware of God's will. We notice that you entrust your soul to Him and you let go of everything else. And those are the hands 
that are empty enough to give to others, light enough to serve others, to love others. This is the way of thinking we all must have. We're called to it. We've entrusted ourselves completely to Him. We believe Him that our flesh is rotten and in it dwells no good thing. We don't listen to our hearts. We don't push for our own way. We entrust ourselves to Him. Lord, You are my chosen portion, Psalm 16. You are my inheritance. You are my lot. It's all on You. My life is in Your hands. Take me. Lead me. We no longer trust the world to give us anything that God has promised to give us. I'll try to get it from the world. I can get it faster. Don't pull in Abraham and Sarah. Don't do it. We've said goodbye to all that, just like Jesus did, and we'll suffer for it. We're maligned for it, but we know our Redeemer lives. And in the end, He will stand on this earth, and with our flesh, we will see God. We know He's made us His own and brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into His marvelous light. So we have a way of thinking that lets us accept that it is God's will for us to suffer in the sense that we're refined by fiery trials for our faith. If we have not entrusted our souls to God, right, then our bodies will not be free to love and serve others. Instead, our bodies will give in to our flesh and succumb to our desires. The goal is that like Jesus, however, we would live in the Spirit the way God does in the world, the way Jesus did. We, we live in light of what God has said is true in spite of what is going on. We embrace the fact that God made us for another world, that our citizenship is in heaven. That is what it means to live for the will of God. It is to accept His Word for us. It is to believe that the Father knows best and to embrace the life that He gives to us. Until we get to Jesus, beloved, it's war. Every day. Every day. To do the will of God, then we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking in this world that Jesus had. We never let our flesh or the world dictate the truth to us. No. We entrust our souls to our faithful Creator and live the lives to which He's called us, even when our flesh is pushing us in other directions. We don't want to suffer. No, we don't like suffering. That's not the calling. But we'll endure the path God gives to us because that is the path He's chosen to lead us to Him. There is a certain way of thinking that enables us to live for the will of God in a world at war with God when Christ has already run the victory. So let us entrust our souls to Him. Beloved, there is not a safer place in the cosmos for your soul than in the hands of of your faithful Creator that molded you out of nothing. The Father loves you. You are His beloved child. he's, He's not dangling a carrot in front of you seeing if you're worthy to make it all the way. We're not. So Jesus came and did it all for us. Entrust your soul to the one who forgives sins and loves you and is sovereign over all things. This is Christ for us. Let us go to Him. He is for us. Would you stand, please?